Welcome to the Harrisburg Brethren in Christ Sermon Series. สวัสดีครับยินดีต้อนรับสู่บทเทศนาของบท Harrisburg Brethren in Christ, where our vision is to be a thriving, diverse urban church sharing Christ's love and serving the needs of our local and global communities. And here's this week's sermon. We hope you enjoy it too. Today, as I continue in the life of Moses, and we've we're on the Ten Commandments. I'm going to read the first seven verses of Exodus chapter 20, 1 through 7. And God spoke all these words: "I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth below, or in the waters below. Below, you shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God." Punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses His name. The third commandment is probably the most misunderstood of all the Ten Commandments. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, or as it says in the familiar King James, "Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain." When we think of misusing God's name or taking God's name in vain, we usually think of profanity. Someone hits their thumb with a hammer and shouts "God," followed by a swear word, or someone hits a bad golf shot and mutters under their breath, "Jesus Christ." Many think taking God's name in vain is wrong because swearing is wrong, especially if you add God to it. But that's not what this verse means. Even though I am not promoting using God's name as, as a part of one's cussing repertoire, when God says, "Don't misuse my name," He means don't use my name or my reputation for activities or purposes that violate what my name stands for. In the ancient world, a person's name had a deep significance that we moderns often do not understand. In ancient times, a person's name was meant to embody everything at the core of that person's identity. One's name expressed one's character or one's values. That's why when Cephas got called by Jesus and Jesus changed him, he immediately changed his name to Peter. He said, "You're not Cephas anymore. You're Peter the Rock." Saul, when he got converted, became Paul. Jacob, after wrestling all night, became Israel. Your name reflected who you were and what you stood for. Therefore, when I pray, for instance, in Jesus' name, it means I am praying in Jesus' will. Praying in Jesus' names means that I pray what Jesus would pray for if He were standing right here. That I would pray for what Jesus values. That I would pray for what Jesus loves. That is the essence of praying in somebody's name. You can't pray in Jesus' name and then pray for something He stands against. This is misusing the name of the Lord your God. This is taking His name in vain. James Moore wrote that some years ago at a Christian youth camp, he heard a young high school girl give a testimony on how God answered her prayer. She said that more than anything, she wanted to be a cheerleader at her high school, and she prayed and prayed about it, begging God to let her have a spot on the cheerleading squad. And when the results 
were in after all the tryouts, she didn't quite make it. She was the first alternate on the cheerleading squad. She said that at the first practice, though, something happened. One of the other girls who made the cheerleading squad fell and broke her leg. And she said, at that point, I was elevated to cheerleader. God answered my prayer. Yeah, that's right. God broke that other girl's leg so that what's-her-name could make it to the cheerleading squad. That sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Does God favor one girl over another for cheerleader? Does God break legs to fulfill adolescent dreams? This is misusing God's name. In this case, it's misusing his name not just because God doesn't break legs for our high school extracurricular activities, but it trivializes the value the values of Jesus. By the way, I see this all the time in sports. I cringe every time after someone wins a game, they give God the credit. Or they, I want to thank Jesus that I scored 50 points. I want to praise the Lord I made six birdies in a row today. I got news for you. I've been praying on a golf course for 50 years, and he ain't answered any of my prayers yet. You know why? Because he doesn't care what I shoot. He cares about me. He cares about the very hairs on my head. Well, used to. Anyway, God doesn't care who wins a game. Except for Alabama football, Jesus isn't interested at all in sports. Although he was very upset after the national championship game, I think he's going to smite Dabo Sweeney for cheating. Anyway. God doesn't care about some of our agenda. He cares about us, but not some of our trivial agenda. Not in a world where thousands of children die daily from hunger, and people are oppressed all over the world, and wars rage on. God doesn't care who makes head cheerleader. We misuse Jesus' name when we apply it to trivial causes which reflect our agenda, not his. Of course, in the big picture of things, these are minor ways God's name is misused. There are much more serious ways God's name is violated. For instance, one of the things that disturbs me greatly is the growth of Christian hate groups. You talk about an oxymoron. You know what an oxymoron is? It's when you put two contradicting terms together. Christian and hate are two terms that do not go together. James Wickstrom is a Christian minister and radio talk show host who often, as a Christian, calls for the extermination of Jews in his sermons. Kingdom Identity Ministries is one of the largest suppliers of so-called Christian identity materials that present a racist interpretation of Christianity. Their mission is to preserve the white race by encouraging white women to reproduce only within their race and states the superior superiority of the white male, as they say, is expressly written in the Bible. America's Promise Ministries is a congregation that relies strongly on what they say is a literal interpretation of the Bible. This church also insists that Jesus was white, not Semitic, and believes that all greatness achieved in the United States can be attributed to the work of the white race and none other. Several members of this congregation have committed violent acts of terrorism and murder, including bombing abortion clinics, doing bank robbings and shootings, and they are doing it all in the name of Jesus. 
All in the name of Scripture. All in the name of Christianity. You talk about misusing the name of God. Are they worshiping the same God that I worship? Who says that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, Scythian nor barbarian, slave nor free, Roman or Greek? Are they reading the scripture which talks about how one day people from every tribe and nation and ethnic race and tongue will stand as one in heaven and worship the lamb that was slain for every one of us? These Christian racist groups violate the whole nature and direction that the kingdom of Christ is bringing. They're using God's name to endorse the opposite of what Christ is doing. They're using God's name in vain and they are way, the way they are using it by the way, it's far worse than cussing and adding God to it. It's bad enough to do evil. But to do it and blame it on God really upsets him. Remember the second part of this commandment. I will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses my name. I will not hold anyone guiltless who does evil and then blames it on me, says God. Or says I endorse such evil. And of course, in terms of Using God's name in vain, there's politics. That's, I've decided it's one of those Sundays where I'm going after everybody. Elias have the car running and the door open. I, if you want good heresy, listen to politicians. I've heard that America is the city on the hill. I've heard that America is the light of the world. I've heard that America is the greatest hope from mankind, from all kinds of politicians. My problem is this. I thought Jesus was the light of the world. I thought his coming kingdom was the hope for mankind. I thought the mountain of God was what we were looking for, not the hill of America. You see, it's one thing to love your country. I have no gripe about anybody loves their country, but it's another thing to worship your country. I, uh, you know, I, I, sometimes I just want to ask Christians, do you know the difference between cultural values and Christian values? Do you know the difference? Do you know the difference between cultural religion and biblical Christianity? Do you know the difference? You know, I, I'm old, which means I've been around the block a few times, which means I've seen things happen over and over again. And I remember in the 70s when many mainline churches thought the political agenda of the left wing of the Democratic Party was what the kingdom of God was about. And it took precedence over the higher call to worship God or preach the gospel or make disciples. The liberals in these churches gutted their own religion, which is why millions and millions of people left these churches. There was nothing to hang on to. Reverend James Forbes the pastor of the Riverside Presbyterian Church. That, by the way, the Riverside Presbyterian Church for years and years was the flagship of the Presbyterian Church USA. And, and James Forbes was a spiritual black preacher there, and he was often criticized by his own parishioners for being too spiritual. I have, I've gotten a lot of complaints in 36 years. No one's ever gone, you're too spiritual, Dalton. Get out. Twice in, the in 1990, his parishioners stormed Reverend Forbes' office to tell Reverend Forbes that he needed to be more politically active, and I will quote here, 
quote, he needed to spend more time critiquing capitalism than quoting Jesus. Forget this spiritual stuff. The important cutting-edge stuff is political. These folks thought God was a socialist or a communist. In fact, they took it to ridiculous lengths. Remember Daniel Ortega, the communist leader of Nicaragua? And you know what? (laughs) He oppressed his own people. He killed his own people. And twice during this time, the the committee that brought in guest speakers at Riverside, they brought him in twice to speak from the pulpit while he was killing his own people. And then the National Council of Churches actually endorsed him and his Sandinista party in the 1990 Nicaraguan election while he was persecuting the church. The National Council of Churches, they're killing Christians in Nicaragua. Let's bring him up here, let him preach, and endorse him for president of Nicaragua. I got news for you. And basically, there were, there were so many. They married Christianity to liberal politics. They married Christianity to, de- to, to the Democratic far wing, left Democratic Party. I got news for you. We're not supposed to marry Christianity to anything. God is not a left-wing Democrat. He is not a left-wing liberal. His agenda is not the great society. And his prophet was not Lyndon Baines Johnson. Can I get an amen? Amen. Rev the motor, Elias. Rev the motor. But God is not a Republican either. You know, again, I'm I'm old. And I was around when Jerry Falwell got started. Not Jerry Falwell Jr., Jerry Falwell. I knew about him before the nation knew about him because he's in my backyard. He used to send out buses. That's when the remember when the bus minute most of you don't. But remember when the busing was was really big in church growth? And he would send out buses a hundred miles to bring them in to Liberty Baptist. And Jerry Falwell formed the moral majority. And the moral majority basically was marrying Christianity to the Republican platform, Republican Party platform. And it was, you know, what the, it was just amazing that what the Republicans wanted was exactly what Jesus wanted. You know, the Republicans wanted strong national defense. Guess what Jesus wanted? The Republicans feared and hated the communists. Guess what Jesus wanted? And I'm not saying either party is wrong about everything. Every party has some things that they are right about, but they have a lot of things they're wrong about. But in the moral majority, they created a scorecard. And the scorecard rated people, particularly politicians, on how spiritual and moral they were based on whether they matched certain criteria, which happened to be the Republican national platform presented in the name of Jesus. The one that got me, I have to tell you, the one that got me was when it came, and some of you remember this, when it came to voting on the Panama Canal Treaty. 
The moral majority said that if you voted against the treaty, and see, the United States built the Panama Canal. It was United States property, and when Jimmy Carter came along, he said, let's give the Panama Canal back to the Panamanians. And a lot of people got really upset about this. They said, oh, no, we will, well, I can't even go into the nonsense. But anyway, if you voted against this treaty, if you voted, you know, they said to you that you were not moral or a Christian. Can you imagine that? How can anybody measure someone's relationship with Jesus Christ and their ethics based on what they think about the Panama Canal? Oh, I forgot it said in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he created the Panama Canal and gave it to America. One prominent conservative preacher even warned that there could never be revival in America until Christian conservatives gain control of the White House and Congress. Does this sound familiar? It's all happened before. I love what Chuck Colson said. Boy, do we miss his voice. Remember Chuck Colson? He started prison fellowship, and he used to be Nixon's hatchet man. He lived in the belly of the beast, and he wrote this. The church must stand apart from the state and the government. Independence from the culture and politics is what gives the church its reforming capacity and enables it to point society towards the truth. The church must be free to address issues biblically, biblically, across the spectrum, and to speak prophetically regardless of who is in power, you, you cannot crawl into bed with political parties. They will use you. The kingdom of God is bigger than any philo philo political philosophy. It, it goes beyond any territorial concept. It carries us beyond personal goals and ambitions. It is spread by witnesses, not soldiers. It's, it's brought into being not by the force of arms or political intrigue or elections or human ingenuity. It is brought ingenuity. It is brought into being by the Holy Spirit. It tolerates no narrow nationalisms. It is a community under the rule of Christ made real by the Holy Spirit which, in which there are no national boundaries where race does not determine how you are treated, where rank and sex are no barriers to fellowship. It is a coming kingdom, and nobody can stop it. And I need you to tell you, it does not depend on politics. We need to hear that. I, you know, I heard the other day that part of the reason Messiah is in a little bit of trouble because after the election, a number of students dropped out, and now they're in some kind of financial crisis. And I said, why did they drop out? And he said, well, because Trump got elected president. I'm going, what? What? Whether he's president or not, the kingdom of God did not depend on who won that election. Get over it and move on. Again, Chuck Colson talked about how he was in Bogota, Colombia, where my son is these days. Please pray for my son. After he had that terrible accident, six weeks later he got hit by a bus on a bike. Uh, so keep praying for him. Uh, anyway, Colson was in Bogota to meet with the Minister of Justice, which is, it was the highest officer in Colombia, and he ran the prison system, and he ran the, you know, the police there. 
and his name was Rodrigo Laura Bonilla. Chuck Colson considered himself lucky to have, get five minutes with him. And Bonilla leaned over and he said, have you been to the prisons? What do you think of them, Mr. Colson? And Colson thought, well, do I tell him the truth or do I be political? So Colson looked at him and he said, your prisons are dreadful. Ha! said Bonilla, slamming his palm to the table. You are right. They are pigsties, unfit for humans, corrupt too. The inmates pay more for food than people on the street. Colson said, I was startled. Bonilla had a reputation as a reformer, and he was leading a massive assault on the biggest industry in Colombia, the drug traffic. But he said, I never heard anybody be that critical of their own department. What do you think we should do? And Colson outlined things that he, from a Christian point of view, said thought they should do. And when it was all over, Benilla agreed with him. After that, he said, we had photographs taken together. Benilla embraced me. It was spontaneous, as if to seal our covenant, to join together to clean up the horrors of Colombian prisons was sealed. He said, I gave him a Spanish edition of my book, Life Sentence, Colson's Autobiography, which he said he would read. And he said, when I went outside the office, he said, our Colombian directors were jubilant. They said, this man is the second most powerful man in the government, and he's expected to be elected the president of Colombia in the next election. Another staffer said, with his backing, prison fellowship will be able to do anything in the prisons of Colombia. Two hours later, Colson re returned to his hotel, and there one of his aides said, have you heard the news? Colson shook his head. He said, Rodrigo Laura Benilla had been assassinated, shot to death by two gunmen, agents of the drug lords, as he was driven from his home office. Colson had been his last appointment on earth. That night, the president of Colombia declared the country in a state of siege, he said, we were fortunate to get to the airport the next morning to catch our fled, scheduled flight to the U.S. On the front page of the Bogota newspaper was a grisly picture of the blood-splattered interior of Bonilla's car. And there, Colson noticed on the seat covered with shattered glass was the copy of Life Sentence, the book he had given him. He said, I was horrified at the death of this vigorous and brilliant young man. And I need to find my, there we go. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> no, 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 I was right. Hold on. Rev the engine. Anyway, he said, he said, I lost a friend. And he said, I was sobered as I remembered our enthusiasm the day before. We had talked as if Bonilla's endorsement would assure prison fellowships success and the word of God in the prisons. He said he returned a year later. And in spite of the loss of this dynamic leader, we found that the ministry was actually flourishing in Colombian prisons. More seminars were going on. More people were coming to Jesus Christ. More people were being discipled. More lives were being changed. Even prison reform was going on. And even though we lost a friend, an ally, in the position of influence, the work, here's what he says, the work of the kingdom of God is not dependent on power of the kingdoms of man. In fact, it says in Psalms, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Let me say that again. It is better to take refuge in the Lord 
than to trust in princes. And Colson sums it up this way. Terrorists stalk the globe and governments can do little to stop them. Wars proliferate. Political solutions fail. Frustrations rise. Yet we continue to look to governments to resolve problems beyond their capability. The illusion persists. Does that sound relevant? But the kingdom of God is coming. And it will keep coming. By the way, its leader too was assassinated but he got up from the grave and he is still coming to this world. Hallelujah. And speaking, by the way, of using God's name in vain, I have to touch at least briefly on this. I cringe every time I hear somebody use God's name in vain when it comes to war. And they always do it. Politicians use clergy and the churches to get what they want. The first ally of a nation that goes to war, that, that the first thing they do is to secure the church or the dominant religious institution of that nation. Those who declare war want the clergy to bless their war, to say God is on our side, our cause is God's cause. The reason is simple. It gives the troops courage to fight harder and lifts morale. It helps with the political equation. But in its worst form, this alignment of God and country can lead to something like the Puritans who after burning an Indian village to the ground and massacring every last man, woman, and child, including infants, paused to thank God for helping them and had a worship service and said, thank you for what we just did here. That happens all the time. In fact, one of the worst part of American history is something called Manifest Destiny. Some of you who actually studied in college know what I'm talking about, or even in high school. Manifest Destiny said that, that the white man was supposed to take over America from sea to shining sea, and it doesn't matter what we did or who we did it to. And we broke treaty after treaty. What we did to the Native Americans is just awful, awful, awful. And it was all done in the name of God, <laughs> of Manifest Destiny. I can think of nothing more ungodly than what was done to these people. So now that I've made you all happy, <laughs> as the church of Jesus Christ, I need to tell you this. We are God's new nation. We are his holy people. We are the new counterculture Jesus is bringing in. We are to look at the world through God's eyes not through national or political or racial lenses. We are to see people as Jesus sees people. One writer put it this way. When we are living with God, we will see people as God sees them. If I'm aware God is here with me and you, and God is looking at you at the same moment I'm looking at you, it will change how I respond to you. Instead of seeing you as the annoying server at McDonald's who messed up my order, again, by the way, they've moved down to Burger King, I will see you as someone God loved enough to send his son to die on your behalf. I will see you as a real person who got up dreading to go to work, dealing with impatient customers, being on her feet all day. In other words, I will no longer see you as everyone else sees you. That is what, exactly what Paul is after when he says, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. 
from now on, now that my soul is centered with God and Jesus, I don't look at people the same way. Too often, those of us in the Christian community see people the same way the rest of the world sees them. It's even how we see each other. Imagine how your church would change if you saw each other through God's eyes. Imagine how the world would respond if Christians saw people the way God sees them. That's exactly what we're supposed to do, to see people as God sees them, not as defined by governments or politicians or earthly philosophies. A woman became seriously ill and spent the last few months of her life confined to her bed. A mockingbird would come regularly and sing just outside of her window. One day she began whistling just to see if she could get the mockingbird to imitate her whistle. Amazingly, the bird did. She would whistle and the mockingbird would repeat the sound precisely. What this lady would whistle, the mockingbird would mock back. One day, shortly before she died, she began to whistle the famous beginning of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. You know how that goes? I would do more, but I'd have to charge you. Anyway, the mockingbird repeated the melody perfectly. In the days ahead, this woman became weaker until she could, did not have enough breath to whistle anymore. But every day without fail, that mockingbird would come to her whistle, to her window, <laughs> and it would serenade her with Beethoven's fifth. At her funeral, the minister told the story about her teaching the mockingbird to whistle, and he concluded the sermon by saying this, somewhere in the world, there is a mockingbird that is going up to total strangers and singing Beethoven to them because of her. We are called to sing God's song to the world, to show the world the music of his heart, to embody his values, convey his love, to play the notes of God's peace. We are called to be his choir, his orchestra, to show people what has come and what is coming. We dare not mistake the music of false gods with the music of the real one. We dare not accept the world's values and then say they are gods. We dare not use God's name to endorse the world's evil. Don't take God's name in vain. Because if we mess up who Jesus is and what he's about, the world will suffer in countless ways. We are to show the world Jesus. We are to bring his kingdom through his power. And if we do, please hear this. We will be at odds with liberals. We will be at odds with conservatives. We will be at odds with Democrats a lot of the time. We will be at odds with Republicans a lot of the time. But we are not to marry any earthly movement or philosophy to the kingdom of God. We are to bring in the kingdom of God in the power of the Spirit you know, we're helping Muslims in this church through our English as a Second Language class. We are not helping Muslims because we're angry at Donald Trump. 
We were helping Muslims before we had any idea who the president was going to be. You know why we help here? Not because of politics. We are helping Muslims here because Jesus loves Muslims. And because we are to shine our light to them in the hope that they will see the light and respond. You know, it's, uh, we, we are, our young adults are starting to help Syrian refugees. And they are doing it at the Jewish center. You talk about getting two political stones with, anyway. But we're not doing this because of national politics. We are doing this because Jesus has led us to do it. We're not mad at anybody. And I'm sure in our mission of mercy, you know, with a medical clinic that comes here, I'm sure we are helping undocumented Mexicans at this medical clinic. And I don't know how many, and I don't know names. I do not know that in case you're listening. (laughs) We are doing this not because because we're reacting to people's xenophobia, but because the Bible said to help the poor, the alien, the stranger in your own land. We're just doing kingdom of God stuff. We do all these things not out of anger or reaction to the laws of men, but because Jesus told us what we are to be about in his kingdom. We're not supposed to be angry reactionaries to governments, but following Jesus in love. What's the old adage? It is far better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. It's better to build the kingdom in love than to chase politicians around and yell at them. By the way, when you yell at haters, they just hate you more. Besides that, if what Jesus says is true and we obey him, you don't have to worry about getting in trouble. We will get in trouble with politicians and governments if you obey Jesus because Jesus shakes the status quo. Jesus cuts against the grain every which direction. History has proven that. Christians always clash with the kingdoms of men if they do the kingdom of God. It is inevitable. And so I, cl- you know, <laughs> it's, it's, let's light the candle, folks. Let's light the candle. Do you, do you want to fight racism? Do this. Look around. Do this. Love each other in Jesus and then try to help other churches do it and start a movement. Do this. Light a candle. You want to fight sexism and misogyny? Well, you can go out and scream about it. Or you can hire great women who are gifted and give them power and let them preach and show the world just how wonderful female leadership is. You can do this! Let's not yell. Let's sing God's song. And do it joyfully. I mean it, don't yell. (laughs) Do God's will. And do it in love. And let no earthly philosophy water down the notes. Sing God's song, no other. Amen? Okay, Elias, I'll be down in a second.
we are going now to pray in Jesus' name. And I'd like Pastor Cedra to come forward. We are going to pray for our sister, and I'm going to let her tell you why, and then we will gather around her as a church and pray. Amen. I was back here a little bit trying to practice my whistle, but it wasn't, it wasn't coming. <laughs> but this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. I thank God for the opportunity to come before you, and I thank God for the decision that we all have to make to rejoice in the good things and the bad things and in the not-so-pleasant things. And I come this morning to share with you... Um, something that's happening in my life that um, I need your help and your support with. In uh, the year of 2012 or 2013, somewhere there around, I was diagnosed with um, breast cancer in my left breast, went through chemotherapy and radiation, and the church was very supportive. I felt your prayers. I knew that you were there. The community that was built around me was phenomenal. And as I reflected, I thought about all the things that we as a family, this church, have gone through. And my heart gets so full because I really believe that you love me, that you care for me, and that you care for my family. At the end of the year, um, around Christmas time, and all through my retirement, I've been seeking the Lord and asking God, what do you want me to do? You know, I know that you're not finished with me yet, but what do you want me to do? And in the late, uh, very latter weeks of December, I started to hear God say, encore, encore. And I said, well, encore is usually done after a great performance when the people really like what's been done and they start to clap and they clap you back on so that you can do it again. And I started to do just like a little research on the word encore and I found that um, there has been like up to 15 encores where the performance was so great. And I thought it, you know, thought asking the Lord, you know, what is it about this encore? What do you want me to do? Do you want me to pastor again? What do you want me to do again? And I didn't hear like any verbal answers. But in going for my checkups, I found that um, they discovered that I had cancer in my right breast again. And the good thing about that is that the cancer that's in my right breast is not as um, aggressive as the cancer that was in my left breast. But the doctors and I, uh, along with my family, have made a decision that I will have to have a bilateral mastectomy um, with reconstruction, and I'll be going in the hospital on March the 9th to get what they call a setup for the actual operation, where they're going to use my own body tissue to build up my breast back, um, but they have to re, uh, reassign the blood vessels so that they'll be able to give life to whatever form um, that they impact the breast with, which is basically going to be fatty tissue, so... That's a good thing. <laughs> you know, I'm going to get rid of it in some places and put it in the places that it's all um, needed. Hallelujah. <laughs> but in praying about it, this encore that I believe that I heard God speaking to me about in December was that 
I may have to go through this again, but I, have to, I really want to go through it with all of you again because I think that the reason that I came out like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego where not even the smell of smoke was on me even though I had been in a tremendous fire. And I believe that I came out victorious before because of that. And so I'm asking that my family here, my church family, just support me one more time as I go through it because it's, it's, it's scary for me. You know, I'm a little older and um, after I came out of cancer the first time, I just began to embrace life like I never have before. And I still want to continue to embrace life. But I need all of you to continue to pray for me and to pray for my family. And please know that I love all of you and you have shown me such support in the past. And I know that you're able to do that with me again. We're going to. I like Pastor Cedric to come down. Anybody that would like to come up and gather around her? Thank you. For some reason, this verse uh, was given to me while Woody was preaching. And um, it, it's in Mark. And they got in the boat, and Jesus said to get a loaf of bread, and uh, they did not take any bread. So they began to question themselves, he must be upset that we did not take bread. And then Jesus said, are you so slow to understand? When I fed the 5,000, how many baskets did you pick up? They answered 12. When I fed the 4,000, the encore, how many did you pick up? They said seven. And Jesus said to them, do you still not understand? Let's, I'm going to ask someone who has been through this to pray. I think it is very appropriate that Pastor Linda pray for Pastor Cedric during this time. Thank you, God, that you um, hear us even through tears. That you hear the, the words that we speak and the groans of our hearts that are too deep for words. This morning, God, we lift up our sister, Cedra. We thank you for her deep faith and her walk with you that is uh, so close. And thank you for speaking this word encore to her and giving her um, just that image of being able to, to go through a second time the difficulties of cancer and come out yet again winning on the other side so Lord we pray this morning for Cedric God we ask for a miracle of healing in her body thank you that you are the all powerful God 
And as you touch her, Lord, we pray that you would take that cancer away. Cast it as far as you can away from her. And God, we pray that you'd give her um, strength to face the, the surgeries ahead. Grace to carry her through them. And we pray, God, that you would help us as a body to be brothers and sisters uh, who support her through this. Help us to lift her arms when she is weary and to pray in her stead. God, we thank you this morning for the body of Christ and for the privilege that we have of walking through both good and bad with one another. We pray your blessing upon our sister, upon Stanley, upon her children, her grandchildren. Thank you for holding them and loving them. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, where are you, Sophia? Sophia here? Today is her 70th birthday, and she wanted us to pray for her because she is grateful for life. And so I thought maybe we could pray for her, and then we're going to let you go, okay? Is there anything you want to say briefly <laughs> about this? Sophia, we thank you for this matriarch of her family. We thank you for the long journey where there's been many, many twists and turns that we cannot even begin to fathom how she got here. But thank you for 70 years. Thank you for her celebration today. Thank you, Lord, for your spirit that has been upon her, that will guide her, that will guide us all. Thank you for Sophia. Now, Lord, bless us as we leave this place. Help us, Lord, to sing your song. Help us to pray. Help us to uphold our sisters and brothers, especially Pastor Cedra. May, Lord, I, I, I'm with her. I believe she's here because of God and prayer. And, Lord, we thank you that we can participate in the encore. Bless us now as we leave. Thank you for your goodness. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, in Jesus' name. And God's people say, amen. Go in peace. wants prayer. You're dismissed, but if somebody really needs prayer, there'll be an intercessor or two up here that'll pray for you. you need so if you needed prayer, but you, you, you can stay, but the rest of you can go. Of God's body I agree with me we're all a part of God's body it is his will that
to mm-hmm. 